0: I'm not going to debate you, Jerry. Okay. I'm not going to sit here and
1: debate. (laughs) 90.7
2: University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, this is the Movie Talk Show on 90.7 The Capstone. I'm Corey Kraft. And I'm Ben Flanagan.
1: Corey, I don't know that I've ever seen as impressive of a run as writers and directors as Joel and Ethan Cohen had from 1987 to 1998, which is an era that I think established them as two of our greatest all-time filmmakers. And of course, by now, the Cohen brothers are no longer the duo that once claimed a spirited but modest legion of followers who praised their films as beautifully unusual, a sort of breath of fresh air in the realm of originality as they mixed heavy doses of stylish filmmaking with rich subtext and nearly every one of their films now winning best screenplay uh, the oscar for fargo in 1996 that certainly played a role in fixing a larger spotlight on their work but their follow-up to that film the big lebowski through its repeat viewing value and slew of memorable lines that created a pop cultural stir films really rarely do uh, in 2007 their film no country for old men walked away with oscars for best picture directors and screenplay perhaps legitimizing the brothers in Hollywood, uh, but worldwide as well. As young bucks, my brother and I were exposed by my father to nearly every uh, Coen Brothers movie in their early career. We watched movies like Raising Arizona, Barton Fink, and Miller's Crossing at very young ages, I might add, um, and started thinking about films in much different ways thanks to those films and other others from filmmakers with similar ambitions now pointing us in their general direction like I said was my dad and he's a film enthusiast himself and uh, he has a filmmaking degree from the University of Alabama right here his name is Steve Flanagan and he joins us today in the studio now just recently uh, my dad taught a faith in film Sunday school series of classes emphasizing Hollywood's interpretations of the Bible and incorporations of stories dealing with religion specifically Christianity and other forms of theology now leading up to his final lesson He encouraged his classmates to watch the films of Joel and Ethan Cohen, to which some who were familiar with their work, they almost scoffed at the thought. His basis was award-winning religion columnist Kathleen Falsani's recently published and released book, The Dude Abides, The Gospel According to the Cohen Brothers, which is an exploration of the serious existential and spiritual questions raised in the films of the popular and sometimes controversial Cohen Brothers. Now, Falsani also wrote the books The God Factor, Sin Boldly, and the forthcoming The Thread, Rediscovering Faith and Friendship, on Facebook. She is also a former religion columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times and current columnist for the nationally syndicated religion news services. Now she joins us live on 90.7 FM. Ms. balsani. thank you so much for taking your precious Saturday morning time to talk Coen Brothers with us. It's my
0: pleasure to be with you guys this
1: morning. Well, great. Well, um, before we delve too deeply into our Coen Brothers discussion, I'd like to get your quick take on James Cameron's little movie Avatar which you recently wrote about on your blog, which people can read at falsani.blogspot.com. Now, with several critics drawing a number of biblical and spiritual comparisons, on your blog, you argue that Cameron fell just a little bit short at successfully creating a spiritual backdrop for this fictional moon, Pandora, and instead uh, that Cameron creates this sort of godlike figure that you found terrifying. Why is that?
0: Well, he has created a a very... Deliberate theology for the Na'vi, the inhabitants of Pandora. Um, he has this wonderful imagination and created an entire backstory for them and their history and how they lived. And in that, he he gave them a god called Ewa, who's sort of a Gaia or a Mother Earth figure. Um, and it, she's all about the interconnectedness of of life. She's all about establishing and reestablishing a balance of life between. The humanoid navi and the trees and the creatures that, that inhabit pandora and we're told that she values life but that stops it would seem with the humans um and i found that sort of the idealized nurturing mother goddess um really inconsistent with how the humans end up being treated toward the end of the film and uh that I thought was was not comforting. I thought it was rather terrifying and and totally inconsistent with the basis of the theology Cameron had established up until
1: that point. Right. Well, you also wrote that Cameron uses pantheism, Eastern spirituality, Native American theology, and animism to create uh, this sort of knobby theology. And uh, people can draw parallels between the protagonist, Jake Sully, as a Christ figure. Uh, Why do you think the film has managed to avoid any major backlash from Christian organizations throughout the country or around the world?
0: Well, I think it's because the Navi spirituality is so nonspecific. Um, he seemed to create the theology from the most inoffensive bits of other earth-based or eastern theologies out there. Um, there's, n- there's no commentary about a Christian god or a, a, some sort of Christianity or Christological sensibility. Um, and because he doesn't attack anything... Um, I don't think it raised the hackles of many religious people, Christian or Jewish, or what have you. Um, it was just too nonspecific to, to be offensive to anybody in particular.
1: Right. Well, the film seems poised uh, to win a lot of Oscars next uh, Monday, I believe, mm-hmm. or Sunday. 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 Sunday, right. Okay, well, it looks like it's going to clean up unless the Hurt Locker has something to say, or maybe a serious man has something to say, which leads us to our <laughs> discussion on the Coen brothers. Now, uh, all three of us, in the studio here are what you would call big fans of the Coen brothers work Um, Coen
0: heads as I call them. Exactly (laughs) and I think
1: you are too and uh, as I mentioned before uh, when you suggest a Sunday school class that these guys deliberately uh, they they deliver you you suggest that they deliberately deliver rich spiritual messages Mm -hmm. in their films There are a little people in the class are a little taken aback and even a bit shocked at that idea is that a reaction that you got when you pitched the book in the first place
0: not to my publisher. My publisher got it right away, but most people, when I was working on the book and they would ask me, you know, what are you writing these days? I would tell them I was writing a book called The Gospel According to the Cohen Brothers, and they thought I was kidding. <laughs> 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 um, for people who aren't Cohen heads, and even for a lot of Cohen heads, uh, it's not the first thing that comes to mind. They think um, people who have just seen, for instance, uh, No Country for Old Men just think about the brutality and the sort of uh, unbridled evil that's portrayed in that film, or Raising Arizona, which is almost a human cartoon, or The Big Lebowski, which on its surface is just a, um, a silly film about a, a stoner. But um, because the, the Coens have taken such uh, a broad approach to filmmaking in terms of theme and genre and setting and era, um, I think it's the spirituality of their films and and this really um, brave probing of existential and spiritual questions that, to borrow a a line from the dude in Lebowski, that really ties the room together.
2: (laughs) Uh, You and other writers describe the Coens as secular theologians. Mm -hmm. Why do you think biblical and religion scholars should take the content in these films seriously as legitimate spiritual commentary?
0: Well, for for a few reasons. Um, I think film is our most powerful cultural medium right now, um, certainly in my generation. It's the common language that we share no matter what our background is or where we're, where we're from or even what our belief system might be. Um, and people tend to be really passionate about the Coens. Either they love them or they hate them. Um, and the, the Cohen fans are a rabid bunch. When I see something, as somebody who writes about faith and culture, when I see a phenomenon like that where people are just crazy about something, I tend to think that there's something spiritual going on that is what is really attracting people, and I think that's absolutely true. Of our, the Cohen.
1: Our guest is Kathleen Falsani, author of *The Dude Abides*, *The Gospel According to the Cohen Brothers*, and I'm curious: Are you pleased to find that the Cohen's spiritual message in their films isn't necessarily that God doesn't exist and we're all screwed, as you suggest in your book?
0: Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, it, I, would, I could never have written this kind of book about, for instance, Woody Allen. I love Woody Allen, but he has—he's a one note player when it comes to god religion and faith which is that it's just all bs and it's all ridiculous and there is no god and you're this is the one chance you have to live and the world is really kind of awful place. the cohen's don't don't have i think there's some of that in what they've created but there's a lot more than that
1: well i know that you have met with joel about the book and you you spoke with him and you said he had a pretty favorable reaction and that their lawyers haven't called i've heard you say no. so it must it must be a good sign but do you think that the cohen's might deny the messages that you found in their stories
0: i'm almost certain that they would deny <laughs> <laughs> uh, they don't like to explicate their films because they're true artists um and and they're they're shy and they're a bit um oblique and obtuse and um uh, But I I think that they wouldn't necessarily deny that looking at their films in this way is a legitimate way to look at them. Um, When I I met Joel and waved at Ethan uh, at the Toronto (laughs) Film Festival, I had been invited to the after party for the premiere of A Serious Man and just happened to have a mutual acquaintance in common who introduced us. And I wasn't going to tell them about the book. but my friend did. And um, Joel was just... Tickled, I think, would be the correct answer and asked if he could have a copy of the book. And, of course, I had two in my purse because that's how I roll. And, uh, you know, they sat there looking through it with friends and laughing. And um, he was particularly, I think, taken with the idea that um, a rabbi wrote the foreword. A rabbi named Alan Setcher wrote the foreword to the book. And I think they really appreciated it and certainly didn't... um, Uh, try to dissuade me or poo-poo it. And I also haven't heard from the lawyers,
3: which is nice. Ms. Falsani, good morning. Good morning. This is Steve. I'm Ben's dad. I'm 55 years old. uh, Baby boomer. uh, Love films. Uh, I led this this, uh, Sunday school class. I attend First United Methodist Church here in Tuscaloosa. Mm -hmm. And uh, my classmates have been together for the most part from their mid-twenties. Now we're up into our fifties, so we've been together a good bit of the, wow. our, our adult lives. Uh, and uh, I uh, did a series of called Faith on Film, and uh, we talked about um, uh, biblical themes, spiritual themes from other films, and of mm-hmm. course, as Ben said earlier, we uh, uh, completed this, this series with the Dude Abides, and I, I did very much enjoy your book. I, you. wanted, I wanted to tell you that uh, I had a a bit of a difficult uh, challenge with my class, though. Uh, I think it may be a generational uh, issue. Uh, you know, I'm not in film now. I, I'm a social worker by profession, but I've, I've had my undergraduate degree in film, but kept a love of film, of course. But mm-hmm. um, I think my classmates struggle with their homework. Uh, what I <laughs> asked them to do was from the first class, which it was a four-week series. Then mm-hmm. the first class asked them to watch Coen Brothers films over the course of the month of January. Mm-hmm. And uh some of them were quite of course familiar with the Coen Brothers uh maybe Fargo, uh maybe No Country for Old Men, but mm-hmm. just didn't seem to really um, uh, focus on Coen Brothers as, you know, a a and with it as an an entity. Uh what I'm getting at is um, is uh You think our generation has a difficulty in focusing on film like these kids do? They just love it. Mm -hmm. You you mentioned that in your book, that uh, the film speaks to their generation. And you think it's a much different way than it speaks to mine, as a baby boomer, so to speak.
0: I I think that's probably true. Uh, I think my I'm about to be 40. Um, I think my generation and um, the ones that are just, Coming up after ours, grew up with film in a very different way than than say my husband's generation. My husband's sixty. Um, I think film was still almost a uh, more of a new media then, and it's not anymore. Um, and I think the kind of conscientious, nuanced filmmaking that's happened um, in the last thirty years is also a bit different from what we might have seen in the in the fifties and some of the sixties too. Um, so some of it might be generational, and then, you know, the Coens aren't uh, aren't obvious in any way about any kind of message or content. <laughs> uh, you have to be open-minded going into it, their films, and you have to pay attention.
3: Well, I and think, not take some,
0: not not take everything that they're doing uh, just on the surface.
3: I think too, it may be just a matter of compartmentalization mm-hmm. uh, with the time. Uh, these kids will watch films at any time of day. Ben will come to me and say, will you watch some of this tonight? And You know, I'm at, I'm home from work, and uh, uh, I see two hours is a huge block of time mm-hmm. to sit and watch a film. But, uh, you know, I'm too tired. But uh, I think maybe my class was interested in perhaps watching clips or watching the films during that 60-minute opportunity on Sunday morning rather than, you know, doing the work leading up to time to discuss the films. Sure.
1: And, well, let's take a quick break, uh, Ms. Falsani, if you don't mind sticking around with Hold us on. for a little longer. Happy to. Great. Well, uh, we've got a lot more to discuss about the Coen brothers with our special guest, Kathleen Falsani, author of The Dude Abides, The Gospel According to the Coen Brothers. Stay tuned.
2: Mother of mercy, is this the end of
3: recall? 90. 90. 90.
1: Listening to the movie talk show here on 90.7 The Capstone with Corey Kraft, my dad Steve Flanagan, and myself Ben Flanagan. We are joined today by special guest Kathleen Falsani, author of The Dude Abides, The Gospel According to the Cohen Brothers. Uh, if you open the early pages of your book, Miss Falsani, mm-hmm. uh, we can read short biographies on the brothers. Um, something about Ethan's biography kind of struck me. Um, he was a philosophy major at Princeton University, correct? That's right. Um, and he addressed bits of the spiritual world in his thesis uh, that I'm surprised could have ever influenced his filmmaking, uh, which you write is with so rife with spiritual and theological meaning. Um, the brothers attended Hebrew school and obviously studied on their own as well um, um, other, you know... As religious students are in their spare time, you wrote the book. You wrote in your book, perhaps their understanding of language and meaning has allowed the Cohens to write so eloquently about spiritual or metaphysical beliefs they don't necessarily hold. Uh, my question is: so why would a guy like Ethan Cohen, who wrote in his college thesis that to believe in God is the height of stupidity, and his brother, why would they care to explore the themes uh, that you deem so right for theological analysis?
0: Well, I. Uh Ethan, uh, as you said, was a philosophy major at Princeton, and he wrote a senior thesis on, on the later works of the Austrian philosopher Ludwig uh, Wittgenstein. And Wittgenstein focused on the philosophy of language. Um, what he what he argued was that um, what we're able to think is contingent on what we can say, and that that flows from language and not the other way around. Um, and Ethan, in that what you're quoting there, he says at one point, I understand what it means to say that there is an omnipotent, benevolent creator, and that claim strikes me as the height of stupidity. Um, I think what what he was saying there as a 21-year-old was, uh, I don't understand people who have faith. Um, Personally, I don't get that, but philosophically, I, I do understand it, and clearly he was intrigued by the idea. And I think he continues to wrestle um, with the idea of faith and God and is there a God and if so how does God relate to humans if God does um, I, would, I would imagine that Ethan in particular is quite a seeker and is still wrestling with the same kinds of ideas he was wrestling with when he was a, a college kid now that he's in his 50s um, so yeah I, when I look at their films when people who are religious Legitimately religious are not painted with um, a negative brush, uh, and what their commentary on them isn't snarky; it's more um, curious, I'd say.
3: I wanted to speak to you uh, about a serious man uh, mm-hmm. at this point. Uh, regarding Larry, uh, he uh, was anticipating his son's bar mitzvah. Mm-hmm. Uh, with joy, it seemed. That, that seemed to be the only element in Larry's life that gave him any kind of sense of wonder or anticipation of something good to come. Now, his son appeared to dread it, uh, didn't seem to care about it. Uh, but, of course, in the outcome of it, uh, perhaps <laughs> there was something significant occurring for him in, in his own experience. But um, why do you think that, that Larry viewed that event, if nothing else, with wonder? In uh, his experience in the film,
0: um, I think some of it harkens back to an idealized version of his own childhood. Um, you know, you're 13 when you make your bar mitzvah, and generally speaking, and maybe he saw it as a touchstone with with a faith—the one thing that grounds him, even if he doesn't understand or even know uh, what the questions are. It, it does. It, it is the thing that connects him to uh, a larger community of faith and a, a sense of, of purpose in the world and a, and a sense of the meaning of life. And I think maybe he's hoping that his son, um, who's stoned at his mitzvah, by the way, might glimpse some of that. And I think in the end he, he ends up doing that, but in an, in an unlikely way, not while he's on the Bima reading his half Torah portion.
3: Well, the, well, Larry had, was experiencing a job-like existence, it seemed, and uh, I, I, liked, I think he maybe had some hope that his son might have a different experience. Oh, sure. Uh, but uh, just uh, the only—I didn't see anything else that suggested that Larry had uh, much hope. Although he was a faithful person in terms of his uh, thoughts about God and or Hashem, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, how the course, in, in terms of his moral order, it seemed to be in order until, of course, uh, some. Decisions were made on his part.
0: Right, or people in his life made decisions that, that turned his life upside down. Right. Um, I, I think that maybe Larry hadn't had occasion to need to be hopeful <laughs> until he was beset by all these calamities, large and small. Um, but he he seems to be an, an innately hopeful person. I mean, he's looking for the answer to an impossible question, which is, why am I suffering? Never a good question to ask because there 's no satisfactory answer, but he 's hopeful continually hopeful that he 'll find an answer with one of his rabbis or some rabbi at some point or someone in his life, and I think he's also hopeful that his life will return to quote unquote normal again um, if his wife comes back to him and if if uh, Danny, his son makes his bar mitzvah and some some kind of order is restored restored in his universe right.
2: Now, perhaps the most pervading theme in these films and your book is explained early on in your Blood Simple chapter where you write, everything we do has consequences that cannot be avoided no matter how hard we try to hide from them. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the through line uh, in their films, particularly, particularly since this is treated with a degree of ambiguity in A Serious Man.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, but I think... My guess is that one or both of the brothers have been through some sort of an experience in their life where they've experienced um, unexpected suffering, where they feel like they're being punished and they haven't done anything wrong. Um, And the thing that I like the most about the spirituality of their films is that they ask these questions and they're brave enough as filmmakers to leave them unanswered. Um, There is, like I said, there is no good answer to why am I suffering. And there is no quid pro quo with God um, and with the universe in general, they seem to be saying. Um, And sometimes beautiful, good people, decent people suffer, and sometimes um, evil seems to triumph. But again, there's that hopefulness that Larry has in the film, and that some characters in other films of theirs have as well, that somehow the order will be reestablished and the good will
3: be blessed, and the evil will be punished. I wanted to go back to Larry and um, also his brother, Mm -hmm. Arthur. Uh, They uh, went through a lot of suffering in this film, but at the same time, they both had some things figured out in Mm -hmm. in an amazing way. I mean, who understands physics? Not many of us. Mm -mm. But Larry just uh, ran through it, Uh, didn't seem to be, you know, troubled by his understanding of, of the way the world works in some ways. And then, of course, Arthur creates this mathematical uh, theory of... Uh, the Dementaculous. And, you know, he has some things figured out. Things start working for him. Of course, it gets him into trouble. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they, as humans, suffer in big ways, and they're mm-hmm. both just struggling to figure things out uh, despite having, having the world whipped in their own ways
0: hmm yeah, that's very true. Um, Richard Kind, by the way, is the, is the actor who who plays uh, Larry's brother in, in a just marvelously humiliating, open, raw performance um, as this guy who has a spacious cyst on the back of his neck and a suction machine that he spends most of the time locked in the bathroom with. And he doesn't have a wife, he doesn't have a family, doesn't have a career, but he seems to be sort of a pure soul. And he's created this thing that call the mentaculous, that is an entire uh, projection of the Cohen's imagination, wherein he's trying to figure out how the world works, um, as if, if he could just figure out uh, the, the math and the physics of right. it, uh, that somehow he would be able to get the life that he's yearning for.
1: Our guest is Kathleen Falsani, author of *The Dude Abides*, uh, *The Gospel According to the Coen Brothers*. Here on ninety point seven, *The Capstone*, the Movie Talk Show. I want to switch gears to uh, what is my favorite Coen Brothers movie, *Fargo*, uh, their nineteen ninety six film that won uh, Best Screenplay and Frances McDormand won Best Actress for playing Marge Gunderson, mm-hmm. uh, the police chief in Brainerd. Um, now, the pregnant police chief. Exactly right. <laughs> now, I think Marge might represent the Coens' most righteous character ever. Um, you say she's the poster child for the four cardinal virtues of justice, fortitude, prudence, and temperance. Mm-hmm. Uh, why do you think the Cohens have yet to revisit a similar character or these traits and create another decent and righteous person like Marge?
0: Uh, I, I don't think they're done with that kind of an idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's. I think the way she functions in the world is sort of a mystery to... The way um, maybe they see the world, a lot of us see the world uh, she's seemingly unflappable she's deeply deeply kind, um, and she's very Minnesotan. they grew up in Minnesota, and I think this is sort of an homage to some of the people that they they knew growing up who were were maybe good Lutheran's, decent human beings who tried to do what they were supposed to do in the world and make decisions for justice and righteousness. Um, and, and McDormand pulls off the portrayal of that character just absolutely wonderfully well. Um, on, on the surface, she just seems almost robotic in her uh, unfailing good cheer, but um, it seems to be coming from a, a deep anchor of, of a sense of morality. And what's interesting to me is um, Francis McDormand is married to Joel Cohen, and Frances' father and sister are disciples of Christ ministers, and um, her dad is uh, sort of a congregation fixer. If a if church is in trouble for one reason or another, he'll go in and, and try to help him out of it. And her sister was involved in jail chaplaincy work for years and years. And I think she must have, I don't have any idea what her own faith might be like or not like, but she seems to be familiar with um, that sense of uh, providing a moral anchor in the world that's based in mercy and and kindness and a deep sense of right and wrong. That's not doctrinaire, um, and that's not pious. It's just good.
1: Yeah, I'm sure that there are more characters throughout their canon that are inherently good, and I think a lot sure. of them you can find in Fargo, but the one that kind of... Um Speaks to me that I that I can recognize might be Richard Jenkins' character in *Burn After Reading*, until he until he makes kind of a rash decision towards the end of the movie. Uh, now, throughout your book, you preface several of your own interpretations of, of the Cohen works by stating, uh, though never explicit, uh, and then you know. This sort of suggests that the filmmakers are playing these messages fairly close to their vests. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that these ideas are obvious to the average Cohen fan or general film lover, or do you find them because you are constantly thinking as a religion writer and interpreter?
0: I think it's probably the latter. I like going spelunking, if if you will, for God in the places some people think God's not supposed to be, um film being one of them, um, and darker filmmaking or, or comedic filmmaking in particular is one of my favorite places to look for it and i think it shows up in powerful ways there um it, this is the kind of thing that um in talking to other cohen fans some people were aware of it and others um when i it they it when it was pointed out to them it was sort of like when you buy a new car you start seeing the same kind of car on the road everywhere you go when you hadn't noticed it before so i think it does make some sense um to people but it's it's not obvious um but it's i think the the deepness and the the thread again that that sort of ties all of their work together um are these probing yearning searching seeking questions about god really
3: what you said about spelunking i think you're right on in terms of the way you view uh finding the the themes because i think Going back to that generational issue, uh, you know, we had lots of films that were quite broad in what they presented. And mm-hmm. uh, we, we in our series, we looked specifically at some Old Testament theme films, uh, The Story of Ruth, mm-hmm. uh, a, a film that came out about Esther a couple of three years ago. Uh, of course the, the the Jesus of Nazareth uh, mm-hmm. we look back at King of Kings and uh, as well as of course the Passion of the Christ in the series but uh, I, yeah I think it's it's, it's difficult to, to mine like you're you're talking about to look deeply because uh, you're not going to find the broad stories or those films are just not going to attract people the way they did back in the uh, the 50s and the 60s, uh, with, with these big biblical themes. In fact, right. some of those films we looked at had these opening sequences with like Cecil B. DeMille explaining what you're about to see, yeah. and then Stanley Kramer coming out before Inherit the Wind. You know what you're about to see here, uh-huh. and uh, you know it's like a big spectacle. But now you don't get that. Uh, you you have to you look carefully. You have to listen and review. Thank thank goodness, of course, for DVD
0: mm-hmm.
3: uh, to allow us to do that. Uh, but yes, yeah, it's just hard to focus and find those messages in the cacophony.
0: Right. And the Coens are sort of are the opposite of the Mill and his epic biblical stories. I right. mean, they would never, ever, ever in a million years tell you what you're about to see. Right. Dot, 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 And right. if they do, you should probably watch out because they're probably <laughs> pulling a fast one on you. Right. It's so, like Fargo at the beginning. It says this is a, a true story. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Which, of course they mean, I think, in a global, <laughs> not specific, this didn't actually happen in Brainerd, Minnesota, but it's a very true story, nonetheless.
1: Well, uh, bringing it back to the idea of the impossibility of avoiding consequences, mm-hmm. um, you suggest that in the Cohen universe, or you call it the cohen universe, right, mm-hmm. uh, every action has a reaction, and no bad deed goes unpunished. Uh, mm-hmm. We see a quote to begin a serious man that says something to the tune of receive with simplicity everything that happens to you. That's right. Um, and to read another excer- excerpt from your book, you write about a serious man. Sometimes the righteous suffer and the evil prosper. It doesn't make sense and it never will. Mm-hmm. Um, so many terrible things happen to Larry Gottnick, this Minnesota, uh, Minnesotan physics professor, even when he leads an honorable life by going to church and raising a decent family, making ethical choices uh, for most of the film. Yet his life sort of unravels rather quickly, leading him to ask several questions, uh, you know, to his rabbis as to why God would allow such things to happen. Now, given that Larry Gotnick does appear to be a good man, I almost began to wonder, as I was watching it, whether or not God had mistaken him from somebody else, um, you know, and was punishing him for things that he hadn't done. Now, the Cohen suggests struggling to find answers to the big existential questions might be a waste of time, and to say that we should just accept the mystery as a character says in the film do you share that thought
0: i don't know if that's exactly what they're saying uh-huh. um, obviously they they see some value in wrestling with these existential questions otherwise they wouldn't make the kind of film that they do um, i think what they're saying is for people who are trying to figure out why x or y has happened to them um, is that there's probably no simple answer to that question um, but that wrestling with the question, and trying to find some kind of an answer is a, is a valuable thing to do. Um, but don't expect that you're going to figure it all out. And if you do, you're probably wrong. <laughs> There's more mystery um, there. It, it, I'm always skeptical, and I think they would be too, of anybody who seems to think they've got God figured out. God is way bigger than anything we could ever possibly get our human minds around. Um, and to do that puts God in a box. And God doesn't even know what boxes are. And I think that's, that's kind of what they're getting at in, in A Serious Man in particular.
2: You say that there is a, a moral order to the world depicted in the Coen's films, mm-hmm. and that when that order is upset, the consequences can be dire, brutal, and swift. Yep. What <laughs> qualities do the Cohen seem to value in their characters? Uh, in other words, how would one make it out alive or in you know relatively good health at the end of a Coen <laughs> Brothers movie? <laughs>
0: not wind up in a wood chipper (laughs) they keep killing him off in more creative and horrible ways Um, I think the highest moral value in the coniverse is decency um, which is something that you see in in Marge and Fargo is something that they grew up with as Minnesotans Minnesotans are deeply kind and decent people Um, and, and being decent doesn't necessarily mean being good or being righteous it just means being merciful and compassionate, and not um, egotistical about how good you might be and how bad somebody else might be. But um, I tease out what I call the 14 Commandments at the end of the book, and and some of them um, are things like don't mistreat women. If you look in their films, if you find somebody who's who's not being good to a woman, that's the fastest ticket to hell. And <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned this earlier. What, if you try to hide something, it's going to be revealed. Um, your sins will find you out. This is where some of their biblical truths come in, specifically biblical. Um, it's better to be kind than to be right. Um, and love conquers all. Um, beware of false piety. Sometimes there's a stranger in your midst come to destroy you. Um, don't get hung up on dogma and this is a quote from The Big Lebowski, because that's just like your opinion, man. (laughs) Um, All moments are key moments. They seem to be saying throughout their films to pay attention to your life. Don't just go sailing through mindlessly. If you're aware and awake, um, you can make better decisions that might change your life and the life of people that you care about. Um, And then there's something that, that I tease out more specifically in the Miller's Crossing chapter, but... It's that no one knows the quality of a person's heart except for God, and that people only show you, you only know as much about a person as they're willing to reveal to you. No one, no one really knows anybody else in that deep, um, abiding way, except for perhaps Hashem.
3: I wanted to ask you about, just since you brought up Miller's Crossing, uh, that hat theme, yeah. the, the man chasing a hat. You know, mm-hmm. Tom says that's a pathetic sight. What, what do you see that as uh, representing?
0: I still haven't figured out quite what that represents. And I'm not the only one uh, in that chapter in the book. You, you'll remember G- Gabriel Byrne, the actor who played the guy with the hat that he's always chasing, um, asked Joel Cohen toward the end of their filmmaking process, you know, the hat, what's up with the hat? It, it means something, right? It's, it's symbolic of something, right? And Joel just sort of went, mm-hmm. And that's all he would say. <laughs> um, you know, it, I, I call the hat his, his uh, emotional body armor. Mm-hmm. You know, he's trying to hide himself from the world and perhaps hide himself from from God. Um, But then conversely, in the Jewish tradition and Orthodox tradition, men and women um, keep their heads covered as a uh, sign of uh, respect for God. Uh, So I'm not sure what the hat means, and I don't think I ever will. It's like, (laughs) what's in the box in Barton Fink? No (laughs) one's ever going to (laughs) know.
1: Well, uh, when we come back, we will offer up our favorite characters from the Cone universe, uh, and they might be some characters you least expect. So stick around. We will be right back here on the Movie Talk Show, 90.7 The Capstone. Our guest is Kathleen Falsani.
3: What we do is if we need that extra
0: push over the cliff, you know what we do? Uh, Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One
1: louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. 90.7 We're back here on 90.7 The Capstone. This is the Movie Talk Show, and we're here to offer up our top five favorite Cohen brother characters. Our guest is Kathleen Falsani, author of *The Dude Abides: The Gospel According to the Cohen Brothers*, uh, and we're also joined by my dad, Steve Flanagan. Now, borrowing a page from the guys over at the Film Spotting podcast up in Chicago uh, on NPR, we find it necessary to sort of disqualify certain characters. Uh, and choices given, just how obvious they are, and how likely they might wind up on pretty much everybody's list if they're making a top five Coen Brother characters list. Uh, so maybe we'll call ours the Walter Subcheck, Jerry Lundegaard, Anton Sugar <laughs> Memorial List, or you know, maybe we'll get even more exclusive with the. Really, we're trying to we're trying to get rid of the main characters, I guess you could say. So maybe the March Gunderson, H. I. McDonough. Uh, you know Llewellyn Moss maybe list or Barton Fing, and we'll all start with our number fives and take turns and count up we'll go one at a time Ms. Falsani please start us off
0: number 5 would be uh, the private detective Warren Visser that's played by uh, Emmett Walsh in Blood Simple who is the creepiest most chilling evil character I think I've ever seen in cinema Um, he's just uh, repulsive in every way uh, and this sort of insidious evil. Uh, I think he's brilliant, and I think the character is, is brilliant,
1: too. Would you say you're more frightened of that character than Anton Shiger? <laughs>
0: uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Equally
1: frightened. Okay, both of them. <laughs> I was about to say, man, because I, I still have trouble thinking about that character. Uh, Dad? Uh, I, I would say uh, Nathan Arizona. Uh,
3: I, mm. I, I really appreciated his understanding of High and Ed's uh, love for the baby, them not being able to have their own baby, and uh, at last scene, you know, you would think he would be calling the police and, uh, you know, maybe even shooting them, but yet he uh, he seemed to understand them and uh, kind of uh, suffered with them in their in their loss, even though they had, didn't really have a loss uh,
2: in their predicament. Yeah, number 5 actually and, I, and I'm going chronologically is Nathan Arizona for me too. Uh mostly because I I love Trey Wilson's performance. I love the writing of that character. He just gets so many great lines mm-hmm. in that movie it, and uh yeah, I mean uh, as portrayed by Trey Wilson, like you just said, he does have
1: a uh, a nice moral quality to him. It's kind of surprising. Uh my number 5 is Ben Geisler uh played by Tony Shaloub and Barton Fink, the studio executive that uh Barton goes to speak with about the uh, updates on how the script is coming. I think Shalhoub just has this gift when it comes to fast dialogue dialogue that uh, is sort of one of the Coen Brothers specialties that you can find in that film and uh, Hudsucker Proxy as well. But I think Shalhoub, who's also great in The Man Who Wasn't There, really pulls that oh, yeah. off in Barton Fink. Uh, you're number four.
0: Uh, my number, my number four would be Nathan Arizona for all the reasons that you both previously stated. <laughs> um, I, I think he's just a, a, a great voice of reason and compassion in an unlikely place in that film, and and the, the performance is just virtuoso. And and he does have some of the best lines in in uh, in the cone move. I think.
3: Okay, um, my number four would be Donnie in uh, the Dude Abides, uh, Donnie... Takes a lot of crap, of course, and uh, he he reminds me a lot of the dude. Uh, mm-hmm. He he puts up with so much and he endures. Uh, of course, he has a sad end, of course, in the film. But uh, I thought that, I thought that character was uh,
1: interesting. Uh, kind of reminded me of uh, Jeff in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Donnie reminds me of Larry Gopnik in a few ways too. Uh huh. Yeah. You know, maybe that's just me. <laughs> kind
0: of a pure soul,
1: kind of clueless. Right. He doesn't at all deserve the things that are happening to him or that are dished out by Walter Corey. Um, my number four is, uh, and this
2: name is set in air quotes, Charlie Meadows, uh, played by John Goodman in Barton Fink, mm-hmm. um, just as a sort of primal force of nature, uh, as revealed, of course, at the end of the movie. I want to be kind of oblique, just in case some of our listeners haven't seen it, because it really is an awesome uh, twist to the movie, so to speak. Uh, but John Goodman gives, I think... Uh, his best performance in a Coen Brothers movie, um, in that film, and and I am including Walter Sobchak, and that I, I I had to think about that, but uh, but I, I really do think he's never been better than he is in Barton Fink at the climax.
1: My number four is Marge Gunderson's old high school friend, Mikey Anagita, <laughs> uh played by Steve Park, who actually shows up in A Serious Man. You might not recognize him. Uh, he's a chameleon. It's the dad. Uh, Right, yeah, Clive's dad. Um, but anyway, Mikey Anagita, I think that that char- that, that scene, comes from left field uh, in such a way that it threw it threw me personally for a loop and added this extra layer of depth uh, to the entire film to Marge's character, especially when we hear later about that character. And I just think Steve Park is so hilarious uh, in this already brilliant cast of people who I think all deserve Oscar attention even the smallest characters in the whole movie. Uh so Mike Geta my number 4. Uh let's go to number 3.
0: Uh let's see. My number 3 was uh John Mahoney's character in Barton Fink, uh, W.P. Mayhew who's sort of <laughs> the, based loosely I think on Faulkner who um, he's not a heroic character, he's a pathetic character, <laughs> but he plays it so well he's just this um, this artist who is plagued by demons he's an alcoholic and has been um, has sort of sold out to to hollywood he's a wonderful um, novelist a heralded who is now writing you know wrestling films or or what ha- biblical epics what have you um, but he's also a complete fraud. We find out that he doesn't write his own stuff it's actually his lover who does uh, and I just think he, it's such a uh, Raw and humiliating um, performance that Mahoney gives, and I think that it's one of the characters that stays with me. Also, kind of chilling and not in a happy way, but um, but I, I love that character and his betrayal.
3: Okay, I, I wanted to highlight the Grave Diggers in "Oh Brother, Where Art Thou"? Uh, they those haunting vocals as the Gang of Three faced mm. their demise. There, uh, I really was impressed with uh, those fellows and their. They're singing it, and it's just kind of kind of haunting to me.
2: I wouldn't, uh, for my number three, I wouldn't be, um, I wouldn't feel right with myself in a Coen Brothers discussion unless I represented the significantly underrated 2004 film, The Lady Killers, uh, from which my number three pick comes, uh, Marva Munson as played by Irma P. Hall, and just an outstanding comedic performance. that really gives the movie a lot of heart, uh, that its detractors accuse of it lacking. Uh, I, I unabashedly love The Lady Killers. Um, Me too. And I, I, uh, I, I feel like I had to get that out there to represent it.
1: Moving on. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, my, no, my number three uh, is, I, I'm, I'm cheating a little bit. I have two characters. It's a tie, but, uh, you know, in my favor, they are a couple. It's Glenn and Dot from Raising Arizona. <laughs> uh, Glenn, of course, played uh, just brilliantly by Sam McMurray, who's done some good work since then, maybe no- most notably on the show Freaks and Geeks. Uh, and Francis McDormand plays Dot. Just um, even though they're out there in Arizona, I think that it, it's such a wonderful portrayal of a Southern couple, uh, which you know we long to see down here in the South and for some reason out in Arizona, I don't know if it's true or not, they've got these wacky southern accents that are actually fairly accurate, but just the, the, the lunch or the picnic sequence in Raising Arizona, I still laugh my head off whenever I watch that, so I'm, I'm always game to see uh, those characters, and in, in a perfect world, they'd revisit them one day, but I highly doubt they will. Uh, on to number two. Uh,
0: my number two is also from the Lady Killers. It's J.K. Simmons' character, Garth Pancake. Um, and it, I could also almost make it a tie with his girlfriend, Mountain Girl. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he, he's just, he, he ha, he's this bleeding heart liberal from the north who's moved to the south and um, seems to have this, this consistent ethic of, of um, trying to be egalitarian and trying to be, um, kind and respectful and, but you know he's an ordinance expert <laughs> he was trying to um, you know, improve uh, the, the, his cohorts around him trying to educate them and trying to make them better but he just keeps really blowing things up including part of his hand and um, I love how he constantly talks about his, his digestive problems and how that's how he and Mountain Girl met I mean, he's just a, a marvelously vivid hilarious character who um if you unpack it a bit is, is is nuanced and profound in his way
1: well dad that kind of uh makes an interesting transition of sorts to your number two yeah, I was going to say Garth Pancake as well. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I also liked
3: uh, J.K. Simmons in uh, the, as the CIA boss oh, as well. Brilliant. He's just yeah. I just love seeing him. He's he's always J.K. Simmons is just fun to see on on film. But I'll, I'll go with another since you've mentioned J.K. Simmons and Garth Pancake. I I would like to suggest the gas station proprietor in uh, No Country for Old Men. Mm, yeah. Uh it's a really chilling scene. Um, <laughs> scared to death and uh, for a good reason. But he he really faced up to evil there at the end, you know, and with that coin flip, what am I what am I putting up? You know, what am I putting up here? He's facing death there, and he stood up for himself. So I was impressed by it. Is Gene Jones, the actor that played he must, him.
1: Must be uh, yeah, but
3: I, I thought that was a great scene.
1: And speaking of gas station proprietors, how about the one in Raising Arizona that the evil or the uh, the brothers rob at the end? You know, that has to count. Uh, anyway, I think he's a great one too. But Corey, go ahead.
2: I my uh, my number two is from uh, Burn After Reading as well. Uh, I'm going to say Chad Feldheimer is played by <laughs> Brad Pitt uh, because poor poor Chad. Uh, but he's, I mean Brad Pitt just goes for broke with his performance. He's given a lot of classic moments. Uh, I really think that, that that character has the potential in the coming years to become another uh, constantly quoted Walter Sobchak type. Um, but I love Brad Pitt's performance uh, in that movie. He's He's great.
1: I'll tell you, my number two skyrocketed to the top of my list upon watching A Serious Man for the first time. And it is Cy Abelman, Mm -hmm. uh, played by Fred Melamed, uh, who is an actor that I'm not familiar with, but going through his filmography, he's been in seven Woody Allen movies. And I'm a huge Woody Allen fan, so I I can't wait to go back and revisit whatever tiny role he had. But every moment this guy is on the screen is just one to cherish, uh, especially... Maybe his first scene with Larry, or uh, when he when he and uh, Larry's wife are suggesting he uh, move into the Jolly Roger, uh, which is just some of the Cohen brothers' best dialogue I've ever heard. So, Cy Abelman, man, way to way to bring the heat uh, the first time I see it. Uh, let's go. Let's go to our number ones, Miss Falsani. Um, I,
0: my number one has been taken. Uh, uh, I was going to say uh, Cy Abelman. Oh, as well, okay. um, let's see. I'll go to and I. Dad was also in there somewhere for me, too. Uh, I'm going to say John Polito, um, who plays Creighton Tolliver the pansy and The Man Who Wasn't There. Um, he's the guy who, who's looking for an investment in dry cleaning. And he's a, he's a gay man in an era where it, it was really rather dangerous um, and completely unacceptable to be out. Um, and his interactions with Billy Bob Thornton's character, Ed Crane, um, are are vulnerable and uncomfortable to watch and, um, and just brilliant. He, John polito has been in a number of their films, also plays one of the characters in Miller's Crossing, plays a sort of um, dim-witted Italian mob boss there, too. And I think he's one Johnny of Johnny Casper. Yes, right. Um, I think he's one of the uh, completely unheralded but brilliant um, character actors. Uh, I've seen him a long, long time. I, I love watching him on the screen. Um, as someone who's not handsome and never plays a good, a, a good or a decent character, he's just always compelling. I can't take my eyes off him with his gap tooth and his full-pencil mustache. He's just wonderful.
3: Okay. Uh, my current number one would be Mrs. Samsky from A Serious Man <laughs> and her uh, dispassionate enjoyment of her new freedoms. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Uh, my number one I, is is Cy Abelman as well, going with the uh, the chronological theme of my list for all the reasons that Ben said. So I get I guess I guess I can't really elaborate, <laughs> but um, other than to say, yeah, the the writing there is just amazing. Uh, and,
0: I'll and let you guys in on something. Uh, Fred Melamed, Cy Abelman, he was my deep throat for the Serious Man chapter.
2: Wow, <laughs> that's great.
0: <laughs> and <laughs> nice. he's a marvelous person, by the way. And I can't wait to see what he does. Uh, After gaining this notoriety, he's a
1: great actor. My condition, if I were you as the writer, I would say uh, please be my informant in character. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Everything's going to be fine.
1: Right. Right. The Jolly Roger is eminently livable. Uh, But uh, my number one uh, has already been mentioned here. But um, I think that this movie has amazing rewatchability, which is surprising, I think, when you watch it the first time. It's from Miller's Crossing, and it is John Polito. As Johnny Casper. Mm. Um, I can't get enough of it. And every time I watch, I think that he, his character and his performance become more valuable with each viewing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think, speaking of... Uh, being valuable, I think John Polito is uh, quite a valuable character or actor in the Coens' repertoire. Yep. Uh, you know he, his performance, like you said, in the Man Who Wasn't There, and uh, Big Lebowski, and even in Barton Fink, which is a brilliant performance. Uh, his his rapport with, or lack of rapport, I guess, with Michael Lerner, who dominates his character. <laughs> Polito is just fantastic, and I hope we see him again soon. But Johnny Casper, he is my number one, uh, and you know. Before we let you go, Miss Falsani, mm-hmm. uh, I would like to ask you trouble you for your personal favorite uh, Cohen movies.
0: Um, up until September of last year, I would have said *The Big Lebowski*, um, but *A Serious Man* has taken that place. Wow! Um, and I, I and obviously, I adore *The Big Lebowski*, and every time I watched it, I've probably seen it forty times. I always get something new that I haven't noticed or seen or, or understood before. But A Serious Man I think is one of the best films I've seen in my life. Um I think it's it's going to have legs and I think it's going to become one of those that um people go back and watch over and over and over again. Um it's just so funny and so smart and so troubling. Um I just I just adore it and I love all the performances and I I hope that they use all of those actors again soon. Well I haven't seen the entire script list yet or um cast list yet for True Grit but I'm hoping that Polito might show up there and that maybe Michael Stuhlbarg will be in there and maybe there'll be even a role for Fred who knows
1: well uh, you might be pleased to know that Tuscaloosa here we're holding a Jewish film festival at one of our theaters downtown and uh, premiering or starting the festival off, will be a serious man. Uh, oh, even, cool. Yeah, even though it's out on DVD recently, the people still have an opportunity to uh, see it on the big screen. Well, that's great. Which is fantastic. Uh, but, uh, Ms. Falsani, we are so thrilled that you took the time out of your Saturday morning to talk Coen Brothers and Avatar and other <laughs> things with us. Thank you so much, um, and we will look forward to whatever you have to write in the future. If you feel like following up on the Coen Brothers once they add to their filmography, uh, we'll be the first to read it. Uh, but thank you again.
0: Well, thank you for your interest, and, and this was a really fun way to start my Saturday morning.
1: Oh, great. Well, uh, it was our pleasure. Thank and you so much. Yes, uh, thank you, and we will be right back uh, for some announcements. Stick around here on 90.7 The Capstone. This is the Movie Talk Show.
0: Hey, this is Jeff Tweedy from Wilco, and you're listening to The Capstone, 90.7 V U A F M Tuscaloosa.
3: I am going to tell her. You should totally tell her, I'm man. I'm going to. Because I watched this movie called Liar, Liar, and the message was, don't lie. And that was a smart
0: movie.
2: 90.7. Welcome back to the Movie Talk Show on 90.7 The Capstone. Um, we have some last-minute announcements, some closing announcements. Uh, business here. Uh we're holding a contest where you the listener can name our still untitled show. Of course we'd like to keep it film or conversation friendly, though there are several words we will not allow, those being movie, film, Screen, Cinema, and real. So we're not going to make it easy for you. Uh, email us at 90.7movies at com with your suggestions. The winner will be announced on the subsequent episode once we've chosen our title. If you have any feedback, again, you can email us at 90.7movies at com. If you feel we've missed something or you have any suggestions as to films we can review or topics we can discuss, please do email us. You can also follow us on Twitter at 90, well, 90.7 movies without the point, so 90... 907movies 907 907 movies. Um, or twitter.com slash 907movies we might even read a comment or two on the air so keep them coming
1: You know, before we move on with the announcements uh, going back to the Cohen brother characters that we were talking about I put a lot of thought into this so I had an honorable mentions list and I just want to throw them out there number one was Knox Harrington the video artist from The Big Lebowski <laughs> played by David Thewlis if that's how you pronounce his name Sidney J. Musburger from the Hudsucker Proxy uh, played by Paul Newman Homer Stokes in Oh Brother Where That. It's a friend by. of the little man. Huh? Friend of the That's Little right. Man. That's right, played by Wayne Duvall. Hilarious. Uh Gail and Evel Snotes, John Goodman and William Forsyth in Raising Arizona. And Wade Gustafson in Fargo, played yeah. by the late Harv Presnell. Great oh, character. Hilarious. But anyway, Dad, I think you might have had a suggestion for our title. Is that yeah? Is that yeah, true? I I suggest the Royale. The <laughs> Royale. All right, we'll put it into consideration. Uh, it may or may not happen. Our thanks again to Kathleen Falsani for joining us this Saturday morning. You can visit her website at Godgirl, that's G-O-D-G-R-R-L dot com. Read her blog, falsani.blogspot.com, or you can follow her on Twitter at Godgirl. G-O-D-G-R-R-L Her books are available online and at various bookstores across the country We were lucky enough to give away four copies of The Dude Abides the Gospel according to the Coen Brothers throughout the week meaning we still have one that we might give away here uh, today or uh, in the subsequent days So So Be sure to tune in to 90.7 FM for your chance to win all sorts of cool prizes, either related or unrelated to this show. And look out for our podcast of this and other episodes of the show. You can find those on my blog at beenaround.tumblr.com, and Tumblr is spelled T-U-M-T. And we'll put links uh, on our Twitter page. Corey and I also frequently write film-focused Facebook notes, if that's your preference. There's that. Read my and Corey's columns in Tusk Magazine, found in the Friday edition of the Tuscaloosa News. Our guest next week is film critic Glenn
2: Kenney. We'll finally discuss Martin Scorsese's latest film, Shutter Island, as well as the upcoming Oscar ceremony, so please join us next Saturday at 9 a.m. We thank you for listening today. We'll leave you with a song from Steven Soderbergh's Ocean's 13 soundtrack. Track called Soul Town by the Motherhood. For Ben and Steve Flanagan, I'm Corey Kraft. Until next time.